listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's episode 12, Ohio vs. Pollution. Today we're talking about one of the most famous events in Cleveland history, the Cuyahoga River Fire of 1969, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of Cleveland's Burning River. It's really the event that you know, painted Cleveland as the mistake by the lake in June of 69 when the river that runs through downtown Cleveland into Lake Erie catches fire on a Sunday afternoon. But it's an event that's often misunderstood, and we'll let you know everything about the Cuyahoga River Fire, its effect, and did it really uh, spark the modern environmental movement. That's the Earth Day and EPA, and even the Clean Water Act are passed in its aftermath. We sit down with Dr. David Stradling, a history professor from the University of Cincinnati and the author of Where the River Burned, Carl Stokes and the Struggle to Save Cleveland. Uh, He's a co-author with his brother, Richard, uh, the book came out in 2015. We've got a link to it in the show notes. A really, really interesting book about the River Fire and, and all the things going on in Cleveland politically, ecologically, industrially. Um, really cool book. And we'll talk to Dr. Stradling about his study into the Cuyahoga River Fire. It's a biblical event. Water's not supposed to catch fire. Uh, it's a pretty simple story. The river catches fire, everyone's appalled, and environmentalism is born. But it's much more nuanced than that. You know, this was not the first Cuyahoga River fire. In fact, there were many. But it was the last. We'll talk to Dr. Stradling about Cleveland's role in the environmental movement, the ecological you know, advances that have been made in Northeast Ohio, and the situation today when it comes to pollution in Cleveland, which was one of the most polluted cities in the country. Our show is brought to you and supported by GoBus. Our friends at RideGoBus.com, the intra-city bus service that goes all around Ohio. Um, again, they've been so cool. And go to RideGoBus.com if you're looking to get somewhere in the state of Ohio. They have very cheap rates, uh, and they've been so supportive. Wi-Fi on all their buses, very safe, very comfortable. Again, go to RideGoBus.com for more information. You know, as we bring you here, this is the third part of a three-part series we're doing on Cleveland. Um, and, you know, we talked about John Rockefeller and the industrialization of Cleveland uh, in Ohio versus wealth. We talked about depression era Cleveland, Ohio versus murder. And this is our last one. This is a little more modern, uh, Ohio versus pollution. This is kind of the after effects of all those years of, of industrialization in Cleveland, in the lack of regulation. We'll analyze the role of Mayor Stokes. You can go back to episode three, Ohio vs. Black Power, one of our favorite episodes we've done uh, with, with Jim Robinelt about 60s um, African-American politics in Cleveland. The election of Carl Stokes, the first African-American mayor of a major U.S. city. And Stokes is very prominent in this story as well. Um, and we'll discuss you know, the problems that led to the river fire 
the birth of the environmental movement, and, and again, our current political and environmental situation as we deal with climate change, the clean water issues in Flint, the algal blooms on, on West Lake Erie, all kinds of stuff still going on when it comes to pollution. Our beer for the episode today, pretty obvious one. It's our friends at Great Lakes Brewing and their Burning River, one of the first craft beers I ever had from the state of Ohio. Uh, a 10-time award winner of the World Beer Championships um, and a 1993 silver medalist for the Great American Beer Festival. And this one's been around a while. It's a pale ale um, and, you know, 6% alcohol. But you can get this anywhere really in the region, not just Ohio. Uh, a great beer. It's got the great picture on the front. Dr. Stradling talks about, you know, he drank quite a few of these while he's putting the book together uh, and still has a few Burning Rivers. So we are enjoying the Burning River Pale Ale today. Thanks again. Go check out greatlakesbrewing.com or go to their tap room um, and restaurant on West 25th in Ohio City. A great spot, a Cleveland institution, uh, and no other beer really to go to today but the Burning River. A quick reminder, uh, just opening yesterday, Saturday, March 16th, the Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit with my friends at the Ohio History Connection is now open. It's it's a multi-level, interactive, modern exhibit uh, from our friends, and it's at the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and it'll be on display for quite a while, at least through the rest of this year and into next. Uh, Go to ohiohistory.org to become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join, or just make your way down to the History Center this spring and this summer. Really cool. Uh, We just did a tour of the uh, of the new exhibit before it opened on Thursday night, Miss Ohio v. the World and I, uh, and really excited about that as we you know, move to the future when it comes to the Ohio History Connection and bringing history to you guys. Um, so go check it out, support a, a great exhibit, all the hard work that, that's gone into it. Uh, sports fan or not, you'll really enjoy it. There's some really cool stuff. But without further ado, let's get to it. We're going to talk about the day the river burned. We'll sit down with Dr. David Stradling from the University of Cincinnati, author, history professor, and associate dean of humanities at the University of Cincinnati. As we'll look back 50 years to the day the river burned, as it's episode 12, Ohio vs. Pollution. Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio, and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. On Sunday, June 22, 1969, a train crossed the Cuyahoga River, crossed the bridge, and a spark started a fire. Fire that would reach up to five stories high. You know, the Cuyahoga River, which runs through downtown Cleveland into Lake Erie, goes all the way south, almost uh, in like a U shape. Goes down all the way to almost just north of Akron around Cuyahoga Falls. Um, and it pours into Lake Erie. But it was incredibly polluted when that train crossed over the bridge in 1969. We asked David Stradling, quite simply, how did it start? So we don't know exactly what the spark was, but um, like all of the other fires on the Cuyahoga River, it it had to do with um, building up of debris behind one of the the piers that was holding up a railroad trestle. Uh, That debris, mostly wood, driftwood coming down the Cuyahoga, you know, dries out as it rises up out of the water, often had been soaking in um, petrochemicals, uh, oil slicks, 
probably some oil on the water itself. And, you know, these are railroad trestles. And so it's entirely possible that a spark from a passing train um, from the wheels hitting a, a rock, um, something coming out of the, the bins themselves. These are railroad trestles that connected to major steel mills. So, um, you know, lots of uh, ore, uh, lots of um, molten metal, um, and, and of course the, the trains themselves can produce some sparks. So that's what, how we think it started. Um, nobody was there to see it, it start, although there had been several other fires that started in this way. So uh, that's, that's the way we anticipate that it, it started. Um, how long does that, first, that, that last fire in 69 burn for? burns for about 20 minutes. Um, it burned long enough so that the, the fire department is able to respond to it before it, it went out. And it's entirely possible that it would have um, continued to spread because as you may know, uh, railroad trestles themselves are largely made out of wood, uh, soaked in creosote to reduce uh, the decay of the wood. And so um, these are flammable um, objects. And once the railroad trestle got, got started, um, it really required the fire department to put it out. But in 20 minutes, uh, putting it out so the, uh, the fire boat on the, on the river comes up, the Celebrezzi uh, comes up and, and helps douse the flames and there are trucks that respond uh, on land. The fire only causes about $50,000 worth in damage. It barely makes the newspaper. We talked to David Stradling about the reporting on it the next day. It burns for 20 or 30 minutes, but it's not a major story. We talked to Dr. David Stradling, how's a river catching on fire? Not one of the biggest stories of the day. The fire is out by the time the press arrives. Right. Uh, so the only photographs that we have of the 69 fire, of the immediate aftermath kind of um, spraying uh, the, the trestles with um, extra water to make certain, certain that they don't um, rekindle, um, that kind of cleanup work. Um, and then some photographs of the trestles that are damaged themselves, the kind of uh, bent metal that, that came. No, no really pictures of the actual fire. No, no flames, no smoke, no, no, no real pictures of the fire. It's really not even that huge of a story when it first happens, right? I mean, That's it, right. It happens so. on a Sunday morning. Um, and uh, we don't have, I didn't have any access to the TV coverage um, because those were not archived. Um, but looking at the newspapers the next day, Cleveland at the time had two newspapers. It had a, an afternoon paper, so um, there's a, a little blurb in the, in the Cleveland press um, uh, in the afternoon on Monday, and there's a, a short article on the, uh, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer on, on Monday morning. And uh, although on the Plain, Plain Dealer, it's, you know, it's a front page little blurb, um, it's, it's really not... There's nothing, no alarm. This is no um, banner headline kind of news. It's very short, par paragraph and a half. Um, and actually what's interesting to us is that the plane dealer even gets some of the, the facts wrong um, right away. Uh, that wasn't very uh, well edited piece. It clearly wasn't big news. Like we said, it had caught fire before. Some 13, 14 times before that it's noted. You know, starting back in 1868. Just a couple years before Standard Oil takes over on the flats. In 1912, a fire killed five people in Cleveland on the Cuyahoga River. A huge fire. The pictures that you see, and we'll talk more about it, pictures that most people are familiar with, are from the 1952 fire that caused you know over a million dollars in damage. Uh, huge flames, re really major fire 
in 52. But we talked to, to David just about those earlier fires and how the 69 fire compares. There are many people in Cleveland who knew that the river had caught fire many, many times before, but it actually had been several years, um, probably more than a decade since the river had caught fire before. So it's entirely possible that a lot of people in Cleveland had lost track of that fact. And in fact, some of the coverage that happens later is kind of reminding people how often the Cuyahoga had caught fire. The I think the, the nadir for... Uh, you know, river fires, if you want to put it that way, the, the, the period during which the river was most likely to catch fire was the 1940s and early 1950s. And the, the worst of the Cuyahoga fires in that period happens in 1952. One of the major issues we're trying to get to today, just like we do in every story, is get to the truth. This river fire that happened in 1969 is something that's burned into my memory. I feel like I've seen pictures and video of it. Uh, you know, it's built into this giant mythic event that people are aware of across the country, across the world. And, and we talk with, you know, there are some misconceptions about it. There are no pictures. There are no, there is no video of the actual fire in 1969. We talked to Dr. David Stradling about just how did this thing build so much over the years? The myth, the myth of the Cuyahoga River fire. In absorbing the myth, which develops over time, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very, very quickly, it happens over time, uh, that we get this sense that, um, you know, this must have been, uh, as, as some people have said, a biblical event, right? That um, we ourselves are fortunate that we don't really think of river fires as being something that should or, or does actually happen. And so r- retroactively kind of casting a, a, a major consequence on this river, that this was symbolic of of this uh, terrible uh, uh, environmental situation. So, I, I, you know, there are lots of people who make claims about having seen it um, in the news, uh, make claims about how long the fire burned. I, I saw one person claim that it burned for days, which um, strikes me as um, <laughs> a, a remarkable exaggeration because that would be one of the most dramatic urban fires right. <laughs> in American history. Um, and I guess in some ways that's what the myth has done, is, is kind of converted this very ordinary you know, call for the fire department into a world-changing event. Uh, so people's reflection of it has to, reflection on it has to kind of live up to that expectation. played you a few of those notes from this song famous song about the river fire by randy newman burn on it's a song it's plays at the beginning of the great uh 1989 film major league about the uh, cleveland indians i'll play it for my wife when we're driving up 71 and we first see the downtown skyline of of cleveland and the uh industrial areas there over uh, just east of downtown i'll make her listen to burn on once But Randy Newman, even he was mistaken about this fire. We talked to David Stradling about, you know, what what even the songwriter who wrote a famous song about the Cuyahoga River fire, even he was mistaken about its origins. Yeah, so Newman in his in his liner notes for a retrospective piece, so as his as he's looking back on his career, um, talks about that that it's a really wonderful song about Cleveland. It's a very romantic song about the fire. And, uh, you know, it's a very lovely piano-based uh, piece. Um, 
and actually very, although he doesn't write it much, you know, uh, long after the fire, it really kind of reflects the mood that kind of takes over Cleveland by the 1980s and 1990s about reflecting back on this moment when, you know, Cleveland made a lot of things and was an industrial city and, you know, was uh, so polluted that its river caught fire, um, could look back on it in that romantic way. But um, he he actually, in his liner notes, makes the claim that he saw the fire on television, which and he's not the only person who's made that claim. And and it may be that they feed on each other, that people read these things, um, and they think that, oh, yes, I must have seen it on fire, too. We've gotten such a great response from everybody listening to our last episode, Ohio versus Wealth, about Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller. But it's men like Rockefeller who start this industrial manufacturing um, that, that grows to dominate Cleveland, oil refining, steel making. These things all produce a lot of pollution. They all produce a lot of things that were dumped into the river. And thus, after that dump, you know, would flow into the lake. And we talked to David Stradling about who was dumping. Who was dumping waste into the river that, that led to this fire, that led to the pollution the killing of all the animal life in the in the Cuyahoga River that contaminated the lake and contaminated the city of Cleveland. So by the time the the river fire takes place, and really in the many decades leading up to it, there are regulations about what you can dump into the river. Now, industry will claim that the number one polluter, if you take if you take everything in aggregate, it would be the people of Cleveland and the suburban Cleveland, that, right. that in fact sewage was poorly treated, particularly in a city like Cleveland where the, and it's still the case today, where you had combined sewers, so uh, runoff from the streets combined with the sanitary sewers, and whenever it rained, even a little bit, you would get overflows. It couldn't all go to the sewage treatment plant, and it would go directly into the river. There is no doubt that that was a major cause of pollution, and not just from the sewage, but from whatever else wound up in the streets, um, garbage, oil leaking from cars. Um, And in fact, industry would say that if there are oil slicks on the Cuyahoga River, they are undoubtedly caused by people changing their oil and dumping the oil, because people were more likely to do it themselves back then, just dumping the oil down the drain. And then a good bit of that oil would wind up into the river uh, rather than going through the sewage treatment plant. On the other hand, it was legal for industry to get permits from the state of Ohio, which regulated um, water pollution, uh, that would allow them to dump their wastes into the river until they developed the processes that would allow them to take those wastes out. So, for example, the um, you know one of the major polluters were those were the steel plants uh, right along right where the fire takes place in '69. Um, there's uh, these particularly Republic Steel is just a major. Um, producer of steel and so it shouldn't surprise us i mean you think about how steel is produced how much water is used in cooling the steel all of that water needs to go somewhere Um, it takes them a long long time to develop the settling ponds to get the iron filings out of course there are all kinds of um, phenols and other kinds of chemicals uh, chemicals that that would run off into the river from there Uh, the cuyahoga valley was a very complex economy. There were um, chemical companies, uh, oil refiners. Uh, There was a time when 
Standard Oil would have been a major polluter along the Cuyahoga. They had closed by the time of the, yeah, the refinery last... Refinery number one up there. Yep, yep. Uh, there was a, a Shell uh, Oil, uh, also had a chemical plant. Uh, there are paint manufacturers along there, which again, by the time of the, um, the fire, were not um, as active as they had been. Probably the most notorious polluter in Cleveland, uh, right on the Cuyahoga River, was Harshaw Chemical, which... Um, produced a number of chemicals for industrial use. Um, and people used to make claims about they could tell what Harshaw was was making that day based on the color of the effluent r- flowing into the Cuyahoga River. So whatever the Cuyahoga, what, whatever color it had turned, somebody could tell you what kind of chemicals they were working on. You can't talk about the Cuyahoga River fire without talking about Mayor Carl Stokes, the first African-American mayor of a major U.S. city. Stokes takes power in 1967. And a lot of David's book talks about Mayor Stokes, uh, Where the River Burned, Carl Stokes and the Struggle to Save Cleveland. Uh, David's book from 2015. He's not a traditional environmentalist. Stokes quickly realizes just how bad off Cleveland was. He'd later say that he um, was just trying to manage the downfall, the urban decay, uh, and, and really try and shape the collapse of the modern American city in Cleveland. You know, he looked at important things like housing condition and rats and other issues we wouldn't necessarily consider environmental. But people keep moving to the suburbs. There's a number of regional issues, pollution from other towns that makes its way up the Cuyahoga and thus through the city of Cleveland. You know, and this savior mayor, Carl Stokes, he can't stop this. But he does begin the process of a regional plan um, to, to clean up Northeast Ohio and to clean up his city of Cleveland. You know, it's not simply something that the city government or a mayor can handle on his own. It's state, it's federal, it's other municipalities. We talked to Dr. Stradling, our guest, about the many challenges, the multifaceted challenges that faced Mayor Stokes when it came to cleaning up Cleveland. I, I must say it was really a treat to be studying Carl Stokes during Obama's presidency because I saw an awful lot of parallels, of course. Um, Obama is the president of a, of a pr- primarily white nation, and uh, Carl Stokes was the mayor of a, of a majority white city. And so he had to be careful about the way he talked about race. He had to be very careful about that. And he tended to, although he attended to the African-American community, he absolutely did. And he had uh, incredibly unified support from the African-American community. He talked about the problems that ran through the African-American community, but he mostly did so in a way that reflected the larger urban condition. So he would talk about housing, and he would talk about concentrated poverty. He would talk about deindustrialization, all of which affected the African-American community disproportionately, but also affected everybody who lived in Cleveland. So at the very same time, we're, we're living in an era when American cities were going through dramatic transformations as suburbanization took off as uh, suburbanization of the population, particularly the middle class population, but also suburbanization of jobs. 
which is uh, in Cleveland is particularly problematic. Even though the metro area continues to do okay, the core of the city is declining fairly rapidly by the 1960s and into the 1970s. And largely this has to do with the fact that even when new manufacturing jobs come into metropolitan Cleveland, they go into the distant suburbs. So it doesn't help Cleveland's tax base. At the same time, all of these problems, air pollution, water pollution, poverty, housing, they disproportionately affect the middle of the city. And uh, Carl Stokes, his part of his education as a politician is not just about how to, how to be a black politician in a white uh, establishment, but how to be an urban mayor in a suburban metropolitan region. And part of that has to do with trying to build bridges to to build regional uh, uh, structures that would help solve these problems. Um, the one regional structure that gets built that's, well, there are a couple that are pretty effective, but it takes a while to do these things. One is doing regional transportation planning, which doesn't necessarily, so figuring out where the interstates will go mostly, but also other kinds of large secondary roads. Uh, all of that required some significant planning and input. That doesn't necessarily benefit Cleveland in the way that you would want, but, um, you know, you couldn't even begin the work without yeah. regional cooperation. And the, and the second is uh, dealing with sewage. That you, Not every place is going to develop their own sewage treatment plant, right? So we're talking about basic structural problems that needed to be solved, and they needed to be solved at a regional level. The day after the fire, Monday, June 23rd, 1969, Mayor Stokes immediately takes the fight of pollution to the media. He, t- he does a PR tour. He takes them around where the fire happened, where he thinks he's, you know, the dumping is. He shows them just open you know, sewage that's, that's flowing into the river. Um, but he takes on pollution you know, in, in northeast Ohio. He goes swimming in Lake Erie. You know, that's on the cover of, of Dr. Stradling's book, Where the River Burned, is a picture of Carl Stokes preparing to go swim in Lake Erie and do PR events like that. But the major issue, like we said, is the state and federal involvement. Uh, they're helping to cause the solution. He pressures Governor Rhodes of Ohio to stop giving these permits out to, to illegal dumpers. Uh, his brother, Louis, Representative Congressman Louis Stokes, at the federal level, uh, doing what he can. But we talked to David Stradling about what the Stokeses attempt to do by putting pressure on, on the federal government, on the state government, on the surrounding governments in Northeast Ohio. And that PR campaign that Stokes starts one day after the river catches fire. Uh, most Clevelanders, most people who lived in northern Ohio, would have listed the the decline of Lake Erie, uh, the spoiling of its beaches, uh, the decline of the fisheries in Lake Erie as um, the most problematic water pollution issue. Um, and, it, and it really, it's, I think it's the work of Carl Stokes and to some degree his brother Louis Stokes, who was in Congress at the time, that um, helps publicize this new ecological way of thinking, which is that you cannot have a terribly polluted river flowing into a lake that you're trying to protect at, without paying attention to the pollution that's coming in, right? So um, the day after the fire, uh, Carl Stokes goes down to the site, uh, the railroad trestles, and invites the press to join him um, ben Stefanski, his director of um, public utilities, is there as well, um, and he talks extensively. And we and we we don't have a transcript of what he has to say, but we we see the the reportage afterwards, particularly by 
Betty Clarick, who was the environmental beat reporter for uh, the Cincinnati Press, or I'm sorry, for the Cleveland Press. Um, you know, so we get we get a sense for what he's trying to do during this tour. He talks about the fire, but he connects it to lots of other things that are going on. And, and it goes back to that theme we were talking about earlier about um, the way in which Cleveland is uh, incapable of solving its problems by itself, that it really needed state cooperation, and it certainly needed the cooperation of surrounding suburbs, right? The the fire happens almost at the southern edge of the city of Cleveland. And so that means that much of the pollution that's flowing to that site is flowing in from suburban Cleveland. Um, and Carl Stokes literally has no control over, over how polluted the Cuyahoga River mm-hmm. is when it flows into the city. So he takes, um, he takes the press corps that shows up, and there are quite a few people who show up, takes them to... Uh, visit a combined sewer overflow that was broken and talked about uh, his inability to fix it because of federal involvement. Um, He he goes to Harshaw Chemical um, with uh, the press corps and and shows them the the regular effluents that are flowing in. And and again, it's the state literally is providing permits to Harshaw to let them continue to dump into the river. Thanks for listening to Ohio v. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. This week on the Ohio History Connection Minute, we're excited to be joined by Jen Altman, who is the director of the World Heritage Project, uh, the coordinator for the Ohio History Connection, and the chairman of the World Heritage Ohio Steering Committee, John Hancock, also from the University of Cincinnati, just like our guest today, Dr. David Stradling. An exciting thing going on at the History Connection is we are working with uh, with World Heritage Ohio on a nomination for what's called the World Heritage List. It would be for the Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks, a series of ancient people's structures, mounds, uh, and, and technology really throughout the entire state of Ohio, the Newark Earthworks, uh, Fort Ancient, a couple of other places. Um, and you can go to worldheritageohio.org to learn more about it or look it up on the ohiohistory.org page. But this is very impressive. The World Heritage List, which is run by the United Nations, um, you know, Stonehenge, the pyramids, it has all the the classic sites. And we're trying to get Ohio's first nomination onto that, you know, prestigious list. I think the closest place is, is Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, as far as places here in America um, that are on the list. But we talked to Jen, we talked to John about that process what are the, the Hopewell ceremonial earthworks? And we start by asking Jen, what is the World Heritage List? So World Heritage is really an international treaty. There's a convention that 193 countries have signed on to. Through the United Nations? Or? Um, yep. So it's, uh, it's a UNESCO program, so through the United Nations. And um, a lot of Americans have been to World Heritage sites, but they don't realize it because we don't have so many in the United States. We have 23 um, there are over about 1,090 across the world. 
Um, but in the U.S., a lot of people have been to Grand Canyon, Statue of Liberty, a Mammoth Cave in Kentucky is the closest one to us, um, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and then you have places like Chaco Canyon and Mesa Verde in the southwest. So, What are those sites, John? Uh, well, there's two sites in Newark, uh, the Octagon Earthworks and the Great Circle. Uh, and those are the surviving remnants of what used to be a, a full complex, the Newark Earthworks. Uh, but those are two pieces of our nomination. There are six others. Five of them are units of the Hopewell Culture National Historical Park in Chillicothe. And the last one is Fort Ancient uh, near Lebanon uh, down in southwest Ohio. When you look at the Hopewell Culture, uh, they were all throughout southern Ohio and across the river to Indiana and to Illinois and to West Virginia, but we have um, really the, the densest concentration in southern Ohio. And so these are really the, the superlative sites among those, kind of the biggest, best preserved, you know, some of the most precise geometry, these geometric earthworks, but there are Hopewell cultural sites all throughout the region. Well, one of the things that's always been difficult about these uh, sites is that they're kind of hard to see. They're kind of hard to appreciate. Um, there's only a few of them that are in pristine condition today. Uh, and even those are so large that it's difficult for people to stand there and say, oh, yeah, I get it. You just can't get it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a combination of things that it takes to interpret these things for people and to, and to let them get a vivid experience of what this what this really rather strange architecture was was like and how, how it makes you feel and so forth. Thanks again to Jen and John. We'll keep our uh, we'll keep our eyes on that nominating process as they go across the pond to Europe and they start dealing with the United Nations thanks with the help of the United States Department of Interior. These are all sites that you can visit. Again, you can go to worldheritageohio.org uh, and look up these sites, make those trips. Although it's not included on the site, you know, it, you can also visit uh, Serpent Mount, another great site here in Ohio uh, that is helped run by the Ohio History Connection. You know, one point of this episode is to kind of debunk the, the Wikipedia-type uh, history that people are used to, that it's just way too simplistic to say the Cuyahoga River Fire sparked the modern environmental movement. You know, it's just much more nuanced than that, and it's just not true. Did it play a role? For sure. Is, you know, the stories and the sights of seeing a river on fire? Uh, yeah, it definitely had a role in it. It's still, you know, something we talk about today. But when you look at the modern environmental movement and its history, you really got to start with Rachel Carson and her book, Silent Spring. Uh, that really should be correctly credited with starting the, the modern mo environmental movement in 1962. We talked to David Stradling about Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Yeah, so uh, Silent Spring comes out in 1962, and it had been kind of serialized, and, and it became a major influence on the way that people think about the environment. The specific topic has to do with um, pesticides, and DDT is the one that people l latch onto, but it's really about a whole um, you know, category of, of these uh, pesticides that persist in the environment. They're incredibly deadly uh, to, uh, not to human beings, mostly, uh, although the worst of them were 
very problematic to, to human health. But DDT, for example, is not really all that problematic to human health, but it does um, affect uh, the ecology in a way that the average American at the time was not prepared to understand. So I think that the, the major impact that Rachel Carson has is that she's an amazing teacher of the fundamentals of how natural ecosystems right. work. So she has you know these incredibly detailed chapters about you know what all all that's alive inside of soil for example and if you if you and the role that all of these organisms play in building the nutrients that are necessary for growing plants um, the way in which these nutrients and and chemicals move through um, the the food web uh, and the way in which those chemicals if they are persistent hydrocarbons that 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 stay in um you know, through the chain and wind up in predators. And so she talks about the ways in which predators will, you know, they build up this stuff in their blood and, and eventually it, it causes um, health problems. And of course, this is what we saw with the bald eagle and with all kinds of raptors that they, uh, she was primarily interested in accessing the story through birds, which is where the, the title comes from. Silent Spring is the a spring without song, uh, bird song. But really, it's so I don't think it's just the the way in which she reaches people through their empathy for nature, but the way that she does her teaching, that even people who are not primarily interested in the environment or in bird watching or or thinking along those lines begin to recognize that all of these things are connected. And as the modern environmental movement ramps up, you know the hippie movement is in the counterculture is also very pro environment and becoming very popular. You look at the 60s, the Environmental Defense Fund is born. Sierra Club becomes much more active. You know, bills are coming to votes and committees in Congress. Things are happening. The first Earth Day is being planned in, in April of 1970. But this fire the day after, this wasn't a big story. There was no social media. Things took time you know, to make an impact. But later that summer time, National Geographic, uh, they publish articles, and their articles with pictures those pictures of, are of the 1952 fire, they fail to say. Um, but they have a huge impact. You know, even you look at Carol Browner, I found this quote. She was the administrator for the EPA uh, during the Clinton years from 93 to 2001. She said, I'll never forget a photograph of the fall of flames, fire, shooting right out of the water in downtown Cleveland. It was the summer of 69 and the Cuyahoga River fire was burning. Carol, who's you know high up in the EPA, even she doesn't fully understand the history. Um, but it's these articles from Time and National Geographic. We talked to David about their impact and how the biblical myth of the Cuyahoga River fire really begins. Well, they definitely get the the gist of the depth of the crisis right. Um, I don't think there's a lot of alarmism in the reporting that happens in 1969 and 1970. Time Magazine runs a piece in August of 1969 that it's just a one-page piece, and um, and, and it's, it's kind of generally about cities and their relationship to rivers, um, and, and it's not just about the Cuyahoga either. It mentions many uh, polluted rivers in the United States, and, and, I, and I think that that's important to remember, that you know, the Cuyahoga was absolutely not the only polluted waterway in the United States at the time, which is really why we wind up with the Clean Water Act, is because so many of our rivers were polluted. But what Time Magazine does is that it 
I think it starts to develop that mythology about the what actually had happened uh, in June of 1969 when the river caught fire, because it uh, shows a picture of the 1952 fire, which did burn um, for a longer period of time. There, there were really dramatic photographs of that fire, as there were of some earlier fires as well. Um, the photograph that they ran in 1969 shows a tugboat um, in basically engulfed in flames. Yeah, um, and it's a pretty dramatic picture. Yeah, it's a very dramatic picture, and, and, um, and it is kind of apocalyptic. And from the perspective of 1969, it, it's, a, it's a real head-scratcher in thinking about how, how could all of this oil have wound up on the surface of the Cuyahoga River, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a very densely populated and economically important place. Um, some boats were heavily damaged, um, docks were heavily damaged, railroad trestle was heavily damaged, uh, the Jefferson Avenue bridge was heavily damaged. Um, that bridge is no longer even there. Um, so I think there's, there was a sense that that small fire was actually a much larger fire than it was. Uh, time didn't indicate that the picture that it was running came from 1952. Mm. And that, that omission, I think for a lot of people who lived in places where rivers didn't catch on fire, was an indication that, gosh, things had gotten so bad that all of a sudden our rivers are catching fire. So that allows for the telling of a, of a less complicated story, um, a, a much more, um, you know, that, that things had gotten gradually worse until now, we're, now we've reached a crisis, when in fact, the Cuyahoga had been terribly polluted for decades. And in fact, the first time it caught fire was in the, the late 1800s, um, as we, as, you know, Standard Oil and others are, are um, first refining oil right along the river. And as we discussed earlier, the first Earth Day is planned in, in the spring of 1970, less than a year after the fire. On that first Earth Day in Cleveland, uh, there was a parade and over a thousand Cleveland State University students held what they called a death march from campus and they walked all the way down to the river. It was a pretty major event in the city of Cleveland, the first Earth Day. You know, and there's such, the lake really was such a massive concern for the community. Uh, it was, you know, the, the lifeblood of the Cleveland economy. Um, and it was clearly in trouble. It wasn't, you couldn't really swim in it. Um, it was just not, not a very pretty good, didn't smell very good. Uh, and I remember the lake being like that when I was very young and we'd go up there. I remember when my stepdad got in the lake when I was really young, I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, while surveying Stokes, David Stradling in his book, Where the River Burned, uncovers these Earth Day letters. You know, Stokes kept hundreds of letters from school children that were writing to him to save the environment. You know, and we'll hear from David uh, about, you know, the importance of those letters and, and the role they played in his book. Uh, and then we'll also hear a reading of a letter uh, from a young schoolgirl in Cuyahoga County. I call them the Earth Day letters. So they're the letters that were sent to Carl Stokes on the first Earth Day in uh, 1970. And, um, you know, so these are kids various ages who are sitting in their classrooms and, and their assignment is to write something to to Carl, in in these instances, to Carl Stokes, I'm am assuming that letters went to the to the governor and to other people as well at the same time. Um, but these are the letters that wind up um, in Carl Stokes's papers in the Western Reserve Historical Society, which was the single most important source as yeah. as we were 
uh, researching our book because I think Carl Stokes knew that, and the people around him knew that he was an important historical figure, the first African-American mayor of a large American city. And so he kept a lot of stuff. Not every mayor does. And he kept, I don't know if he kept all of these Earth Day letters, but he kept hundreds of them. And um, altogether, they provide an incredible window into how young people and the people who were teaching young people perceived the environment in Cleveland in 1970. Um, This is how I came to realize that that concern about Lake Erie was much greater than concern about the Cuyahoga River. Uh, It's how I came to realize that concern about air pollution was much greater than concern about water pollution. Um, because that that's the way that the the students directed their attention. It was also kind of shockingly to me the way that I came to realize that the Cuyahoga River fire, even a, a whole you know almost a year afterwards, had not developed into a major issue in the city of Cleveland itself or in Metro Cleveland. Right, the um, almost you know very small percentage of the kids mentioned the Cuyahoga River at all, and even among those who mentioned the Cuyahoga. Cuyahoga River, I think only one of them mentioned that it caught fire. So, you know, that that was not part of building their sense that there was an environmental crisis in Cleveland. They got that just from their day-to-day experience with, particularly with air pollution, which is so visual. And um, and many of the students uh, referenced uh, the soot on snow. Uh, you know, they had just gone through a Cleveland winter and, and no doubt, on the, you know, snow can leave very late in the spring in Cleveland. So no doubt they're, they're paying attention to the way that uh, soot falls on snow and, and turns it dark. Um, there's a lot of references to that. Um, and, and they're also, you know, the city kids are also paying attention to the way in which their, their urban environments are filled with disorder. You know, a lot of trash and broken glass, rats, um, you know, things that we wouldn't necessarily associate with the environmental crisis, but clearly represented the environmental crisis to them. And to Stokes. And to Stokes. And, and, and you know, it's interesting that, you know, the letters are almost universally very polite. You know, these are assignments for school. Um, so they're, they're practicing how to be um, good citizens, right? Being, you know, part of participatory democracy to communicate with your... Uh, elected officials, uh, and they they treat Carl Stokes with respect, but they also treat him as somebody who could be solving the problem, mm-hmm. and and that's where that's to me that's kind of the heartbreaking part, is that m- mostly what I read from Carl Stokes is is an assessment of why it is that a mayor of a of a declining city cannot solve the problems that run through his own city. And then the people who are writing the mayor are assuming that he has the ability to do just that. Dear Mr. Stokes, stop pollution. It's plain to see our area is deteriorating at a rapid rate. By 1980, we may all be walking around wearing gas masks in order to breathe. Lake Erie will be a giant sewage dump. In fifth grade, I'm now in the 11th grade, I had the experience of taking a nauseating ride on the good time too. May I suggest changing the name of this boat to the Pollution 2? When I took the trip, my fellow classmates and I spent the day watching the Cuyahoga River change colors and smelling how bad the stench could become. This matter should not be put off for future generations. There might not be a future generation if the problem of pollution is not stopped immediately. For the cause of mankind, please do as much as possible to combat this critical situation. Sincerely yours, 
Claudia Mendet. Protecting the environment was not a party issue in 1969. Our rivers are catching on fire, you know, action must be taken. President Nixon, a staunch conservative, starts the EPA on New Year's Day in 1970. This changes the landscape. This federal department has a wide mission. It's able to make an impact across the country uh, on the way that we build things, on, on everything that we do. Um, we talked to Dave, you know, isn't it weird that it was Nixon who started the EPA? Uh, and he says, you know, not really. Um, it just was a different time. Uh, Nixon is, of course, a famous conservative, um, mostly for his anti-communism. Um, but we have to remember that the Republican Party was very different in 1970 than it is today, yeah. that many of the most active conservationists and even environmentalists um, were still in the Republican Party at this time, that environmental legislation was much, much more likely to be uh, bipartisan. And it was, right? The Clean Water Act and the, and the Clean Air Act. They're very uh, bipartisan efforts to solve very real environmental problems. So there's less of a, an ideological um, divide in among the parties here. Uh, and the in environmental problems and solving environmental problems is one that could bring together um, bipartisan cooperation. Richard Nixon, Nixon, for all his flaws, was at least a, um, a pragmatist when it came to um, policy. And I, I think he understood that these were, um, these were pieces of legislation that he should support um, and at the very least not get in the way of. Uh, he creates the EPA by fiat, really, and it's a way of um, kind of reorganizing the federal government. So he takes pieces of, um, you know, uh, regulatory responsibility from various parts of government and combines them into an environmental protection agency, which is a really important step, um, even though we're not necessarily that step by itself doesn't mean that the federal government is now initiating its concern for the environment because they had been doing things beforehand, but it, it elevates uh, environmental issues to um, a new level, right? Just as they had um, by creating the housing and urban development um, uh, uh, department that we, you get a sense that here is an area that the federal government should pay attention to. Water Act of 1972 is another landmark piece of legislation. It's hard to imagine the Cuyahoga River not playing a role in its passing. And we talked to David about the importance of federal intervention to help curb pollution and protect the environment in Northeast Ohio and across the country with things like the Clean Water Act. I think it's really essential. I mean, people debate about the the efficacy of these early laws, because it does take them very long time to create the, you know, the the standards that the would framework. Yep, yeah, the framework, how they would work, um, how enforcement would work, uh, what the actual standards would be. It, it it does take a long time. It's disappointingly long period of time for to many people. Um, but we also have to remember that the federal government is also spending a lot of money. Um, at, at the same time as coming up with the regulations that would be enforced and then, you know, making certain that they were enforced. You know, all that while, of course, they're continuing the practice of, of giving permits to polluters to continue to, per, to pollute. Um, but um, the federal government is investing uh, millions and millions of dollars into uh, sewage treatment infrastructure, 
which is absolutely essential, that there are lots of communities that had essentially no uh, sewage treatment uh, facilities at all. And that it's not a very sexy topic, but it was absolutely essential to getting a handle yeah. on, on water pollution. Um, and in Cleveland. Yeah. Yes, and particularly in Cleveland. Um, and the, the other thing is that the creation of the EPA and the, and the processes by which um, new regulations would be enforced kind of forces the hand of, of industries, which had all, many of the, the major industries, including the steel mills in Cleveland, had already invested their own millions of dollars into new processes that would keep polluted water out of the river, make certain that there are settling ponds so that the filings do not get into the river. Um, you know, the Standard Oil had invented new technologies to prevent um, oil from getting into to the river. And, you know, eventually those technologies would, would work their way through investments through, through various industries. So it's they're trying to control their own investments, right, to make certain that they don't adversely affect their bottom line. But industries see that the change is coming and they try to get out ahead of it um, by making certain that they have these technologies that are going to work for them. And this era of bipartisan environmentalism was pretty short-lived. Regulation and, and environmental protection, those are political issues now. I guess everything in the current environment is a political issue, and that sucks. But protecting our planet really shouldn't be. It used to be something we all agreed on. I thought, you know, maybe this happened in the 90s or the 2000s. Uh, but I asked David, you know, when did pollution become political? David cites a, an earlier moment when this probably began. And it probably happens when, um, while Carter is uh, the president, the economy um, is, is shaky. Uh, we have a second energy crisis um, during the Ar- Iran, um, you know, the hostage situation in Iran. Uh, we already were dealing with uh, deindustrialization on a, on a national scale now um, as steel making flees to uh, Asia um, as automobile manufacturing flees to uh, Japan uh, there are a lot more places that are are being hurt by deindustrialization than had been in the 1960s add on to that the fact that the United States is no longer able to supply the the petroleum that itself needs um, and and you get a sense of precariousness and many people, you know, a sense of trepidation about the future uh, of the economy of the United States. And, and many people begin to point fingers at environmental regulation itself that we, um, they claimed, I think this is completely er- erroneous, they claim that, you know, the investments in the infra- industrial infrastructure in the United States slows because industry is wary of building where regulations are more intense, um, that we, that oil companies stop investing because it becomes too expensive for them to do so. Um, I, I don't, I don't think the data, um, uh, you know, reveal that those, those kinds of positions are true. Um, I think the data actually show that environmental regulations saved billions and billions of dollars because of the positive impact that they have on public health, among other things, but also on the the conservation of resources that they that themselves have real value. Um, so, you know, I think it's really in the late 1970s when we start to get this 
a storyline that is as um, mythical and simplistic as the one about the the fire itself that environmental regulation itself was powerful enough to compromise American industry and that's simply not true you know a lot of cities I feel like would have run from the Cuyahoga River fire um, and hide from it uh, but not Cleveland you might even say that Cleveland embraced it they certainly didn't shrink from it you know the mistake by the lake the fire certainly helped this national narrative of Cleveland develop as this dirty rundown post-industrial hellscape and in the early 70s there was a healthy dose of that the city is much improved you know when it comes to the 21st century you know urban renewals in cities like Cleveland and Pittsburgh are leading examples of what can be done in this post-industrial age but the national media still cites the Cuyahoga River fire it's still brought up to bring Cleveland down and we talked to David about who's to blame for the fire being burnt into Cleveland's identity, you know, their identity nationally. Uh, and is it really even Clevelanders' fault as much as it is the media's? And also just our mutual affinity for our beer for the episode, uh, Great Lakes Brewing Company's Burning River, which David obviously drank quite a bit of while him and his brother Richard wrote this book in 2015. Well, at this point, I, th- I feel like... Um Cleveland has really taken ownership over the fire. I mean, my favorite is um, the Burning River Pale Ale from Great Lakes Brewery, which uh, is a very good beer. It is. I, 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 I drank it all the time while I was doing this. In fact, my you know, people, uh, I still drink it, but... Um, In the you know, office. It, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so I would, I would have... Um, my office was filled with the imagery of, of the Burning River pale ale because I just I thought the that image was was so remarkable um especially the one that was kind of before the yes, cartoon logo right I know. don't the the newer ones which are kind of more stylized and in, in a, in a painting and um but the original one which was um you know kind of a, a a I don't even know how they did it photoshopped it together with some flames in the in the foreground real flames but not real flames from a fire on the river and the beautiful uh, bridges go- crossing the Cuyahoga near downtown and the skyline in the background. It's, re- it's really a romantic image of a burning river. And um, so w- what I like about uh, Great Lakes is that, you know, at the, at the heart of their mission is a revitalization of Cleveland and, um, you know, playing up things related to Cleveland. Many of their beers have Cleveland-related um, titles. Sure. We just did an, uh, an episode on Elliot Ness. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, there's all of that, but there's also an environmental ethic behind what it is that they do. And so it wasn't an accident that they came up with the uh, Burning River Pale Ale. Uh, to try and use that image as um, a reflection on how, how much has improved since then, um, and maybe as a cautionary tale about um, not going back uh, to a time when, when those kinds of things could take place. Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com and all Ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. Now, last fall, the United Nations and their panel on climate change 
released their findings that if we don't cut our carbon pollution by some 45% in the next 12 years, that we really wouldn't be able to avert serious consequences from global warming. Extreme heat, drought, extreme weather will begin to show disastrous consequences, especially here in the United States. There's nothing that really that frustrates me more than when people, uh, you know, not understanding that extreme cold is a result of can be a result of climate change too. You know, these storms. The the phrase global warming refers to the overall temperature warming across the globe. That doesn't mean that when it gets very cold, that it disproves climate change or global warming. It just doesn't. And so I hope you can do better and develop a a better argument than that. But this multi-year study, uh, it really should have shocked our consciousness. And I remember seeing it on the news um, that basically we have 12 years uh, before we might reach what is you know a, a real tipping point. You'd think that would shock our consciousness, that it would spring our governments and citizens into action. But it hasn't. We asked David, why not? I'm not sure what does account for it. I think part of it is that it, there isn't... Um there's nothing really visual and immediate that we that we play over and over again. Part of it is that it's a very complex problem, and right now our press is broken. I mean, I, if you watch the mainstream news, they they have trouble not showing you know funny cat videos. It's really the the shallowness of media reporting these days is is really remarkable. Um, so I think that's an issue. I think the the difficulty of human beings to act now for things that are mostly going to affect them, their future selves. Um, you know, we see that all the time, not saving for retirement, you know, all kinds of issues that people just, um, it's difficult to do. Um, but I, I do think, and I talk to, to young people, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor, so I talk to we talk about climate change all the time in my classes. I'm an, I'm an environmental historian. It's an important topic for us. And I ask my students what their, their thinking is, and they, they fully understand that climate change is happening. They fully understand that it's going to affect their lives as they get older. Um, and I do think that there is a bit of paralysis there, that, they, that it's a, such a big problem that it's hard to imagine what your particular action can do to solve it. Right. Um, and and I, I think that that's, it's going to take organizations, large organizations, global organizations, um, to really organize so that people feel like they're making a contribution. I'm surprised it hasn't happened uh, to this point. Uh, I think the Trump administration has, um, has raised so many other problems with its, um, with its rhetoric and actions that um, it has kind of prevented people from focusing on climate change certainly the, the media I would yeah say. yeah yeah the media is incredibly easily distracted right <laughs> the um the the news cycle doesn't help they're they're trying to um report on the thing that everybody else is reporting on right now right um yeah that that doesn't but as a help. professor i mean do you feel i do feel like the the next generation the, we're we're moving past the point where we're debating, and, and it's embarrassing that we're even still in this, and, and you can put that on the present, but that even that's too simplistic, um, that we're still debating whether climate change is real. I think we are at least moving past that point. Yeah, we don't, we don't debate it on campuses, obviously. I mean, the, the, we pay attention to facts at, at, and on university campuses, and so the only thing we debate about is um, 
what kinds of actions would be most effective now, right? Yeah. Because there, there are definitely ways of differing in opinions about these things. Um, I think that a lot of my students are, have a very, they're optimists, young people are optimists by nature, by and large, and, and so they assume that there will be some technological fixes, and I don't preclude that possibility. I do think that there will be uh, leaps in energy production, for example, which some of which have already taken place. I, so I, I do imagine a, you know, a carbon neutral, um, you know, energy production at some point in the world. And the question is whether or not that gets developed um, as we're in crisis or as we're staving off crisis. Right. We listened to a, a number of speeches David gave during his book tour. Uh, when he gave in 2016 at the famous City Club in Cleveland, uh, which he said Cleveland was in a unique position to benefit from the immediate disasters of global change, uh, global climate change. We asked him, you know, what did he mean that, that his thoughts on Cleveland in, in a warming world? So I think I think that Cleveland is well positioned <laughs> in a warming world. Um, it's entirely possible that its weather will improve. Uh, it will. I think it's almost certain continue you have good access to water. And in yeah. fact, this February, it's had too much access to, <laughs> to water. It's been raining so much in Ohio. Um, so I think that there are um, there are indications that there are parts of, of the world that are better prepared because they will not have to, to develop those inf the structures of resilience um you know think about the investments that miami is going to have to make is making already um, miami beach is already spending millions of dollars to try and raise uh, the lowest streets to try and make certain that it has uh, pumps in place to remove water when the waters rise um you know those are not things that cleveland's going to have to spend money on um, uh, many of those investments are going to be made by the federal government uh, but a lot of them are going to be borne by local taxpayers. Yeah. Um, and I think when that happens, um, we, we, we will, this is obviously long-term trends, um, we'll see a reverse migration. Uh, you know, Ohio has lost a lot of population to, uh, you know, North Carolina and South Carolina, Georgia and Florida. And I think um, particularly Florida is eventually is going to have to start losing, shedding some of that population. Um, and, and, I, and I do think that northern climates were, are probably better suited to, to um, accommodate them. The 1969 Cuyahoga River fire was the final fire. The river is cleaner. The lake is much cleaner, even swimmable. Uh, you know, fish life is back in the river after basically a complete extinction. Now, there's all different types of fish that exist in the Cuyahoga River. But we still have major ecological issues in the region and many that have made national news. The clean water disaster in Flint, Michigan is still a major problem and, you know, and needs to be discussed. In the western uh, Lake Erie, you know, the algal blooms, those are still growing. You know, they paralyzed the Toledo water system for about four or five years now. You know, the Toledo water system kind of sucked up this blue-green algae, the cyanobacteria that had contaminated the northwest Ohio um, drinking water and it can cause major liver and kidney damages this green ooze that kind of sits on the surface uh, of western lake erie continues to grow continues to threaten the ecology and even the health of the people of northwest ohio and southeast michigan uh, it's believed to be a result of the phosphorus rich kind of runoffs from from farms uh, near the north coast 
it's made its way into the into the lake and it's caused a huge problem. We talked to our guest one last time, Dr. David Stradling, you know, about despite all this progress since June 22nd, 1969, that major challenges still remain. It does. Um, I mean, the f- Flint strikes me as a peculiar issue in that it was it was a unforeseen outcome from uh, from a series of decisions that shouldn't have been made in the way that they were, um, and then of course the lack of responsiveness that was largely due, I think, to um, the disadvantaged relationship between the people of Flint, particularly African Americans, and the state of uh, of Michigan. On the other hand, if you think about so, um, I, I think about the the now annual crisis that takes place in Lake Erie um, with uh, you know new algal blooms, yeah. uh, something that we thought we had moved beyond, um, and and clearly we haven't. Um, and those problems are again they're really complex because of the number of people involved and the number of different. These are more kind of focused in kind of western Lake Erie. Yes, still. western Lake Erie where a lot of um, runoff from agricultural land causes these annual blooms that are really problematic to the environment and to, to fishers, to, to people who would like to swim uh, in Lake Erie and even for the water supply. Um, so problems that we definitely need to solve. But they're, they're problems that are going to require um, changes in the way that we fertilize so the the you know, the regulation of farmland. Um, and these are, these are things you can't solve right away. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading. Guys, that'll do it. Our book recommendation for today is David Stradling and Richard Stradling, his brother, co-authors of Where the River Burned, Carl Stokes and the Struggle to Save Cleveland, uh, 2015, from the Cornell University Press. Really good stuff. Dr. Stradling from from the University of Cincinnati, thank you so much. He came up to Columbus uh, and stopped by our studio, and we had a really great uh, chat with him. So much stuff that we couldn't even put in the episode for time reasons. But again, go get that book. There's a link in the show notes, Where the River Burned. You can learn so much more. Uh, really fun, really good read, really eye-opening. Uh, don't forget, the Ohio History Center has its new Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit. It just opened this weekend, March 16th. Uh, go check that out. Go to ohiohistory.org or just go to the Ohio History Center in Columbus right off of 71. Really cool new exhibit, interactive, great for kids, um, and great for sports fans and non-sports fans alike. So really proud of that. Uh, new exhibit and go check that out. I'm going to take some friends up there in the next week or so to, to go see it. Speaking of sports, props to my Cleveland Browns picking up Odell Beckham Jr. Sorry to all our Bengal and Steeler fan listeners, but this is a Browns fan podcast. 
Uh, we are the team to beat in the AFC North. So go Browns and go check out that Champion of Sports exhibit. And a special thanks again to Jen Altman from the Ohio History Connection and John Hancock from, from World Heritage Ohio uh, and their efforts, all their efforts to get Ohio's ancient peoples uh, you know, on the World Heritage list and make it really into a, a tourist attraction here in the state of Ohio. Really ambitious project, but things are going incredibly well um, as we continue to move along towards full nomination and being you know enshrined on the World Heritage List by the United Nations. So great work by them. Uh, and we're really rooting for them. And again, thanks to uh, GoBus, our friends at RideGoBus.com for their support here in Season 3 of Ohio v. The World. Uh, again, go to their website, RideGoBus.com, for rates, routes. Again, super cheap way to get around Ohio uh, and very comfortable. It's not like a Greyhound bus at all. So check them out at RideGoBus.com. Next week, we will switch gears for Episode 13. Only three episodes left in Season 3. I can't believe it's gone by so fast. But we will do Ohio vs. Conspiracy. Three different stories of conspiracy in Ohio uh, during the 20th century. We'll talk to three separate guests, and it should really be a fun episode. We've got conspiracies coming out of Dayton, Columbus, Cleveland. Uh, really fun, and can't wait. That's going to be a really interesting episode. So we'll look for that one on March 31st, Sunday morning. You can hear Ohio vs. Conspiracy. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Again, special thanks to Dr. David Stradling. Share the show. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, we're on Spotify now. You can look us up on Instagram at, at Ohio v. The World Podcast. We are on Twitter at Ohio v. The World. Uh, and share the show. Let your friends know about it. You know, we've so many people have been listening this season. It's been so great. Um, but the more listeners, the better. So let people know about it. Share it on your social media. Um, and again, you can email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com with show ideas. So thank you so much. We only got three episodes left. We'll see you in a couple weeks for Ohio vs. Conspiracy. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.